This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel. Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. Chris Whitty's plan was to reopen in July to get the next wave out of the way before winter. Uh, now, as we're going into winter, the seven-day average of new cases is almost 45,000, the highest since uh, July, and getting close to January's figures. Experts are warning the booster scheme is running too slowly to have an effect. Um, is there a clear picture of why infections are so high beyond uh, the bleeding obvious that everybody's out and about <laughs> without masks on? Uh, there's no simple answer, except that COVID <laughs> is widespread in schools, which was always going to happen, given that we've started vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds much later than other European countries did. So that's a kind of reservoir of infection. I think the latest figures show that one in 10 kids in secondary school had COVID last week or week before, which is obviously quite a lot. And naturally, that's going to spread it in the in the community. Other countries have vax mandates in Europe. They have compulsory masking and we don't. Although in terms of kind of how much we move around, it's about the same as France, apparently. If you look at Google mobility stats, the problem emerging is that although the elderly have very high vaccine coverage, the vaccine does begin to wane after about eight months. So now we're having to boost all those and there's been relatively low take up among the people who are eligible at the moment. And does the government have a plan beyond don't worry about a thing because every little thing going to be all right? <laughs> well, he does have a plan, which is called Plan B. Um, and under Plan B, uh, they would basically bring back masks being mandatory and they would encourage you to work at home. What's uh, A? Uh, plan A is what we're at the moment. That's the three little birds strategy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So... I mean, but at the moment, they are not inclined to implement it. And the reasons for that are many. But, you know, one is that we were kind of told to expect that there would be 50,000 or so odd infections each day, if not higher, by Chris Whitty. He was just, I think, hoping that would happen sooner rather than later so that it wouldn't coincide with all the winter pressures on the NHS. But ultimately, it all depends not so much on case numbers, but on the pressure on the NHS. I mean, when hospital admissions reach a certain level, and that's when restrictions would be would be triggered, because that's when the risk of overwhelm becomes just too much for the government to accept and the public to accept. So, I mean, the problem with Plan B at the moment for the government is that it's seen as a step back by Johnson. You remember the roadmap? It mm. was going to be irreversible unless there was a new variant. And it's inimical to Johnson's style of government to, as he sees it, go backwards. So they've kind of been conflating Plan B and lockdown, although, as you can tell, Plan B is actually a very, very different proposition to lockdown. Alex Andreu is a very busy commentator. Hi, Alex. Hi, Dorian. That's me, busy commentating. <laughs> Always commentating. <laughs> um, Matt Hancock has had a roller coaster week, which replenished the UK's supplies of Schadenfreude. No sooner had he announced that he got a new job at the UN, helping Africa's economy recover from COVID, than the offer was withdrawn. And as far as I know, the UN doesn't normally do wind ups. So, what exactly happened? Well, you know, jobs fall through all the time. They made an offer, they withdrew it. It's not like they were caught on CCTV snogging another candidate. <laughs> no, I mean, the kindest 
interpretation is that there was a genuine misunderstanding, which meant they couldn't offer him the job if he intended to continue sitting as an MP. Right. Um, Africa's loss is West Suffolk's gain. <laughs> the less kind interpretation that the is that the UN took one look at the Joint Parliamentary Committee report on how the UK handled the pandemic and realized that the best time to sack Matt Hancock is before he begins. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's no longer possible to appoint this arsonist <laughs> to the fire department. <laughs> Our guest this week was last on the show back in summer 2019. He's a prolific commentator on law and policy, former legal correspondent at The New Statesman. David Allen Green, welcome back. Hello there. New Justice Secretary Dominic Raab has said his plans to overhaul the Human Rights Act would include the provision for the government to introduce ad hoc legislation to, air quotes, correct court judgments that ministers believe are incorrect. Is that legal? How is that legal? (laughs) Well... What we have with that statement is something which was published in a Sunday paper, uh, although usually when things end up in Sunday papers, there's a sort of sequence of misdirections and ambiguities from the minister to a spad to a time-poor reporter who then has to try and reword it so it's not a direct quotation. This actually was an interview. This was Dominic Raab himself saying this to, to, to a journalist, that he was going to introduce this this mechanism. On the face of it, it doesn't seem to be that strong a proposal because if a court holds that the government has acted unlawfully, then there's not a great deal which Parliament can do in most circumstances or ministers can do to reverse that. So it's not clear what the mechanism is actually there to do, what laws it's going to change. But the impression which I think he was trying to convey was when a court holds that uh, a thing is unlawful because it's against human rights or takes a certain view on a human rights question, ministers can then intervene and somehow by legal magic change the situation when they think the court has got it wrong. Well, let's just think about that for a moment. It's not really for ministers to subjectively decide when judges are wrong. If Parliament, for example, doesn't agree with a judicial interpretation of law. Of course, given the doctrine of parliamentary supremacy, Parliament can intervene, but that's for Parliament to do. Really, it's about as strange and a uh, contradiction to the usual separation of powers that can imagine that it would be for ministers to subjectively change the law when they disagree with what judges say. I'm hoping that when we actually see the proposal in legal drafting, we understand what he is getting at, because I don't think anybody understands what it really is getting at because i don't understand and i suspect he doesn't either well that's what i'm wondering is is this a kind of very unorthodox power grab or did he just misspeak it, it's capable of both i think that's the joy just of looking at the hu- <laughs> looking at the human rights act issue within government it's it's enough to make any sensible person weak because we have a situation in the Ministry of Justice of chaos or near chaos in the criminal justice system. There are severe problems within the prison system. The civil justice system is is in a very bad way. So we've got this department which is responsible for the courts and for prisons and for probation, and effectively it is in a poor state. We have a new Secretary of State in charge of justice, a senior politician, even if not a senior lawyer, who is deputy prime minister, so well positioned to win cabinet battles. So this should be a great moment for the Ministry of Justice to say, at last we've got a senior politician able to get the resources we need from the Treasury. And what is the new Secretary of State doing? 
He's picking a fight over the Human Rights Act, probably for domestic consumption. There's no real problems there which need to be solved. And it's just very depressing. What we need at the Ministry of Justice is somebody to take a grip of the justice system and the prison system and actually make some reforms and get some decent funding from the Treasury. And what we've got is the sort of stuff which plays well with the Sunday press. This week on the show, the shocking murder of Sir David Amos, MP for South End West, has somehow proved what everybody thought already, even though we don't yet know anything about the killer's motive. We'll be discussing new calls for banning online anonymity, increased security for MPs and more, and the politicisation of a tragedy. Then we'll speak to David Allen Green about the fate of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the potential legal and economic quagmires in the months ahead. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, it's been just over three months since Freedom Day. Covid rates are increasing rapidly, but the public is still demob happy. We'll talk about how pandemics end. Before we get started, we have exciting live show news coming up. Oh God What Now is doing its bit to regenerate the live entertainment business. We will be treading the boards again very soon, in some familiar places and some new ones as well. As ever, Patreon people will be the first to find out where and when we'll be appearing. You'll get early bird access to tickets and discounts for the new live shows. Search Patreon Oh God What Now to sign up. You'll also get early ad-free shows plus our world-famous tat. News coming soon. Sign up and be the first to find out. First this week, Southend has been given city status by the Queen in honour of David Amos, who was murdered at a constituency surgery in Leon C on Friday. Politicians across the spectrum paid tribute to a backbencher who first entered Parliament in 1983. Roz, the FT claimed in the headline, David Amos killing will change how Britain does politics. Is that true? And if so, why this murder and not that of Joe Cox in 2016? Well, there was a very different context in that Cox's murder was just before the referendum, of course, so that the referendum dominated discourse at the time. And we didn't really spend as long as we might otherwise have done talking about her murder. I think the FT is actually wrong about this. If you look at MPs' killings, there, there were six MPs and a PM killed before Joe Cox. And all except Spencer Percival, who was the PM who was killed early in the 19th century, were Irish Republican terrorists, uh, were killed by Irish Republican terrorists. Cox, of course, was killed by a white supremacist. We don't know why this particular uh, person acted. It's under the Terrorism Act at the moment, but we don't know his exact motivation. So we need to ask ourselves, how, why and how should it change Britain, the way Britain does politics? If we find out that the motivation is terrorist, what does that tell us? Does it tell us anything about whether Britain is a more violent society? Does it tell us about the way the terrorist threat has been changing over the years? Probably it does. Or are there all kinds of other issues which are being brought into the mix by people who are generally concerned about the state of political discourse in this country? And I mean, they're, they're, they're very different MPs. Joe Cox was a, a fledgling Labour MP and David Amos was a veteran Conservative MP. I mean, do you see any sort of significant differences in the media coverage and public reaction this time? Yeah, there are big differences. I mean, last time Cox's murder was interpreted by the left generally as a sign of growing intolerance, as worries about right-wing extremism, as, as worries about the quality of public debate. And this time... Amos's has been interpreted by politicians of all parties, I think, as proof that MPs are physically in danger and more threatened than ever before. Clearly, 
nothing much improved in terms of public debate as a result of Cox's murder. But I think the context is a bit different because the last two years have shown us how much it is possible for MPs to do remotely. Obviously, Parliament has operated largely remotely for a while. And there no longer perhaps seems an automatic reason why a constituency surgery should take place in person when it could be done via Zoom. And that, I think, has changed the mix in terms of the kind of risk that MPs are prepared to tolerate for the sake of doing their job. So, Alex, that is directly dealing with the um, the risks of meeting constituents mm. in surgery and being sort of physically present there. And there's no evidence that this murder had anything to do with, with online abuse from anonymous accounts. Mm. Um, do you think there is, but yet that has become one of the big yeah. stories of the last few the days. The big story, I would say. I mean, do you think there's any justification for debating this now, even if it's something that you're concerned about? Is there something about using it, about bringing it up in this context? If this were a government I trusted, I'd say maybe, um, because behavior is on a spectrum. And there may actually be very useful algorithmic ways in identifying escalating behavior or spiraling behavior. What what we mustn't do is conflate the fact that extremists are on social media with the notion that it's social media that makes them extremists, because I don't think the evidence for that is there. There is useful stuff that can be done about uh, online being used as a tool for recruitment and radicalization. That happens for sure, but it's people doing that. You know, online is just the the medium, and it has little to do with people being mean to their MPs on Twitter, I think. My worry is that just like the police crime and sentencing bill banning noisy protest, this will become, the online harms bill will become another vehicle mm. for insulating politicians from criticism, which actually increases the feelings of exclusion, helplessness, alienation, which we know are the things that make people susceptible to being radicalised, right? And things, a lot of MPs, they're not really on Twitter in any meaningful way. I mean, some people... You know, we will follow certain transmitters. They're mostly transmitters. Some some are kind of uh, sort of there and quite present and and want to engage and therefore do actually experience a lot of this abuse. Mm. I don't know whether a lot of sort of older MPs are kind of like checking their replies or are they just kind of posting, you know, getting somebody to tweet sort of constituency news and happy birthday, your majesty and and then not even sort of experiencing this. It's probably a member of staff. I, I think... It is natural and human that because of the expenses scandal, because of a series of events that have made people distrust politicians, um, MPs are always keen to point out that it's actually a very difficult job, Mm. (laughs) you know, and it's quite self-interested. And it's true. You know, I'm not. I'm not doubting it. I'm just saying that it's a bit of a hobby horse on which to jump. And some people have brought up the coarsening of public discourse, um, and it's obviously fun to see the people who brought you enemies of the people um, <laughs> bringing up again Angela Rayner's scum comments. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Is this sort of? I don't know why this. This isn't just sort of inappropriate, but but sort of rather rather sordid to imply. 
Um, well, I mean, we've had this conversation before, haven't we? Uh, I, I think I mean, we disagreed on on I, whether that was appropriate language, but, but sure, it's, I, it's obviously it's not what appears to be involved here. I think I stand by my view that that it's not about the language. Uh, the the almost universal unifying strand between all these people who commit these atrocities is that they're in a sort of fight or flight state that they believe this to be a war. Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech is perfectly polite. You know, Breivik's manifesto contains not a single swear word. The the Daily Mail calling judges enemies of the people breaks no rules of refinement. But it is, in my view, those things. It's, in my view, the the poster of a queue of uh, refugees with the words breaking point that are much more a trigger for radicalization than you calling me a wanker. David, some MPs are demanding legislation to be passed very quickly uh, following, following this murder. I mean, as a rule, is it ever wise to rush through legislation after a shocking event? Once upon a time, when social media was very young, I spent two and a half years of my life defending a case known as the Twitter joke trial. This was a case where somebody had made a humorous remark on Twitter mentioning bombing an airport and that chap was prosecuted and convicted and it took two and a half years to get the case to the point where the High Court overturned the conviction. Those two and a half years was spent trying to educate judges and the Crown Prosecution Service as to what social media was and was not. The chief prosecutor at the time was an ambitious young barrister called Keir Starmer, who insisted that the case could not be dropped and had to actually go to the full appeal at the High Court before the Lord Chief Justice. And fortunately, the Lord Chief Justice and the other judges on that panel found emphatically that no offence had been created. The problem of prosecution authorities not understanding the relevant law is is not a new one. And so if we do create some new offences under the Online Harms Act, there is no reason to believe that there will not be problematic prosecutions from a misunderstanding of the technology and, and the nature of social media. So it doesn't matter whether things are rushed in or not. In in, in the case of the Twitter joke trial, the, case, the actual law dated back to the 1930s. It was the old telecommunications offence. It had never been prosecuted. The problem is not so much the law, but the fact that the police and the CPS may take counterintuitive views as to when prosecutions and arrests should take place, and that will have a chilling effect. You used an anonymous Twitter account for, for years. I remember you were, sort of, you were Jack of Kent before you... Uh before you came out under your own name. Presumably you're kind of against the whole idea that sort of anonymity in itself, you know, that, that, that abolishing that would be a net good online. Anonymity is something which is common in, in British political and media culture. It's quite strange that politicians are demanding an end to anonymity in social media when you have the off-the-record compact between media and politicians where all sorts of things can be put into the public domain with no accountability. So it would 
it would be quite a quite a thing if politicians insisted on getting rid of anonymity for social media users when so many politicians are quite quite deft at using anonymity in mainstream media that sort of begs one point which is you can't really uninvent anonymity in social media you can't just point a wand and say i'm using a spell to get rid of anonymity it's not terribly difficult to be anonymous on social media all you need is access to a vpn and and you just set up a separate email account and there you are and so to say we can get rid of anonymity on social media is to presuppose that it can actually be done but unfortunately it can't be uninvented and there are so many things which can be put into the public domain by anonymous accounts which constitute a public good there was the old nightjack police blog but now we've got our very own secret barrister so the problem is not anonymity and even if the problem was anonymity that problem cannot be easily solved if at all it can't be uninvented the problem it seems to me is getting the platforms to take targeted abuse seriously and to make it more difficult for targeted communications to go through when they're abusive and to have quicker takedowns and redress for when it does happen but unfortunately platforms are not really interested in taking that seriously they would much rather it be perceived as a government problem Roz, uh, talking of some other solutions which don't really apply to this problem, there's obviously a sort of fear generally of, of, of kind of, of, of abuse of MPs. The, the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority is thinking about redacting some information about MPs' expenses, with some complaining that it invites sort of abuse over them spending too much on biscuits and so on, and some more seriously saying that it, it actually publicises information about their movements. Now, all that Ips has done is sort of gone, OK, we're just pausing this for a bit to have a think, which, which seems quite reasonable. But do you think that when they have their think, uh, that this is something to be, to be seriously considered, that, that, that there is a kind of downside to transparency about expenses? Or is it more of a kind of knee-jerk, oh, no? It depends if it obscures, if the edits obscure what they're actually spending money on. Clearly, it mustn't become an excuse to cover up what MPs are doing. I think it could probably be made more opaque without too much, too many problems. So I, I don't think that would be a serious problem. I think we have to be careful as well. When we think about abuse online, obviously, social media provides a space, a venue for online abuse and an unlimited potential audience for that abuse. But we also need to think about uh, the way that it amplifies offline abuse in a way that previously might not have happened. So today I'm thinking particularly of a degree of outrage on Twitter about some campaigners, protesters, who have hung up a noose somewhere in the vicinity of Parliament from a tree and People have understandably taken pictures of this and said, this is appalling, especially now. And it is appalling, especially now. But would these nutters, frankly, have got any attention mm. if it hadn't been that someone had posted this online? I, you know, Previously, it wouldn't obviously have been reported on national news, probably not even local news. It would have been ignored. These people do not deserve our attention. They are getting too much attention as a result of people being outraged on, on social media. And so we need to be careful about how many 
real threats MPs actually face and whether they are greater than they used to be or whether it is about a general feeling that people are threatening and closing in on MPs and making them feel uncomfortable. Alex, finally, this is being dealt with under the Terrorism Act. An independent review into the PREVENT programme has said that MI5 should have more control over the scheme and the role of community groups and organisations like schools and the NHS to be reduced, which would be quite a major shift in, I think, the way that this was presented. So again, we don't we don't know enough about the, the murderer. Do you think that an, a, you know, a, a case like this is reason to reassess how PREVENT is doing its job or is it just too soon to... Yeah, well, I mean, the review of the Prevent program is not, has been, its publication has been pushed back and back and back. And it's not due until next year. We know from some ancillary right, documents yeah. that th- this is part of what it, look, it is reported that the perpetrator was known to prevent. This could mean anything. This could mean a teacher 10 years ago having referred referred him as possibly vulnerable to i mean we don't know the wider issue is that with there's a public perception of all such measures that de facto we rarely get to hear about their successes we rarely get to hear about the things they averted that's the nature of the beast and there's a weird impetus to say that if he was known to prevent, he should have been stopped, which is quite a perverse incentive, you know, that prevent will be treated more kindly if it knew nothing about this person than if it did know about this person and somehow didn't step in. But surely the fact that prevent, you know, that, that he was on prevent's radar is a positive thing. It's a mark of success of the, but, of the scheme, right? Even though it didn't lead in this particular case to an intervention that was meaningful. And of course, you know, one can't expect that everybody who, I think there would be other problems if every single person who was on prevent's radar was uh, arrested. Well, yeah, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and it's also, a matter of resources. I know it's not sexy and fashionable to say this, but, you know, it takes enormous amount of resources to follow these things up, to monitor people. All this stuff, you know, it takes a huge amount of people power, you know, personnel that's necessary. So if you keep cutting and cutting and cutting at the relevant departments and the police and, you know, you can't then be surprised that they're not basically monitoring everyone that's even a tangential risk and stopping them from doing something. As we recorded last week, EU negotiators were presenting their counteroffer to the UK with the government ready to trigger Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, Alex, we know a bit more about the EU's offer now, but events in the UK have obviously pushed it down the news agenda. So, in brief, what exactly have they okay, come back with? In brief, which necessarily involves a certain amount of lack of detail. So, the EU says it will halve the paperwork involved, especially on food products. It will lead to an 80% reduction in checks. It addresses difficulties, importantly, with mixed consignments, which we know were a big problem. So this is a truck that has loads of different products in it going to a supermarket, let's say, before you needed to do separate paperwork for each 
product in it, you can now do one single certificate for the entire consignment. It reduces the customs information uh, that firms need to send in advance. And it allows pretty liberal trade between GB and NI in medicines. So those, I would say, are the, the, the broad headings. It basically splits everything into two lanes, a green lane for stuff that's going to end up being used in Northern Ireland and a red lane with more checks for stuff that's going through Northern Ireland but will end up in the EU. And it's very hard to be objective because we don't like this government. But would you say that this was a has, – has, has the EU – made a, is that a decent offer? I think it's a very decent offer and the, the government accept it's a very decent offer. David, Lord Frost, of whom you were a great fan, uh, now says that parts of the Brexit <laughs> deal uh, yes. were always provisional. Um, does that reflect, reflect the text of the agreement that he made? We are in an extraordinary situation with Lord Frost and this agreement because... You have this 2020 Lord Frost who negotiated the, doc, uh, the document and promoted it as, as, as a great agreement. And now you have 2021 uh, David Frost who is saying that it's uh, an awful agreement which <laughs> was negotiated in, in haste and needs revision. Not to and mention 2016 Frost who hates Brexit altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, 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 I was going to bring him into the sort of tangled timeline. It, it, it is like it's, a really it's like the three, doctor, three doctors episode of Doctor Who, isn't it? All these different David Frosts meeting and arguing. Yes, yes. You can imagine a really dreadful version of one division, but on the end of the world, instead of having various Lokis played, one of which is played by Richard Grant, you've got the various versions of David Frost in these various views about Brexit. But it is it is preposterous, and it's it's difficult to think past that, because you think, how can we be in a situation where the person who negotiated this agreement and, and, and endorsed it is now the one that wants to take it apart? But we've got to try and uh, not think like that because otherwise we won't ever think uh, about it in a more objective sense. So let's just pretend they are two different people who happen to be called David Frost and <laughs> let's have a look at the government's position <laughs> on its merits, even though it contradicts what it was last year. Even on its own merits, the current position was was misconceived. So uh, you had Frost insisting that the European Court of Justice issue was such that he had to trigger Article 16. Well, the role of the European Court of Justice in the Northern Irish Protocol is residual, it's minimal. I don't think there has been a single adjudication by the European Court of Justice. The reason why it's there is because, for certain purposes, European Union law has to be followed in, in Northern Ireland. And the only way of actually knowing what the law is of the European Union is to actually have a body which can actually tell you what it is, and that's the European Court of Justice. And so if you have EU law, you're going to have the ECJ in some capacity because that is the body which determines what the law means. But it hasn't been a, a major role. In fact, I, I don't think we've mentioned it until recently. But then you got the threat to tr trigger Article 16. Or because you trigger something, that does not make it a gun. 
Article 16 is not a terribly <laughs> aggressive provision. It is not there for trade wars. It has not got the title in the Northern Irish Protocol, this is a provision to trigger if you want to have a trade war. No, it has the title safeguards. It is there to safeguard the Northern Irish Protocol by providing a process where if there are different views on a significant question, the parties can sit down and discuss what measures should be put in place on a very temporary basis, on the also on the basis of necessity. It really is not what the Brexiters and the more strident opponents of the European Union think it is. So you had this position where he was going to trigger Article 16, which probably wasn't going to make a great deal of difference, on the basis of getting the European Court of Justice out of the protocol when it wasn't a, that was a non-issue. And, and which, so, the, which Article 16 can't do. No, well, not really. It'd be quite an extreme interpretation of certain provisions to actually say the provision which safeguards the protocol can be used to suspend the entire protocol. And so the European Union instead ignored the ravings of the government about Article 16 and the European Court of Justice and just spoke to people in Northern Ireland about what the practical problems were about the various pieces of paperwork which needed to be done and the processes which Alex has just uh, detailed. And then they made some practical solutions on the basis of those discussions and the government knew that the EU was going to make these practical suggestions, but wanted to sound as if they had made a win. And so you've got some half-witted people now saying, oh, the EU only surrendered because the UK had been so robust. But anybody with any understanding of the chronology and the detail of the proposals knows that just did not happen. And so we've now got this situation, which I think is mutually convenient to the European Union and the United Kingdom government, where the United Kingdom get to boast of its virility and, and, and its success in battles, but loses, or at least doesn't get its ray at each stage, whilst the European Union gets its ray at each stage and doesn't mind getting the discredit. And so, because the European Union don't really care what the front pages of our newspapers say, they can shrug, they get on, and, you know, just as the plaque on Ronald Reagan's desk famously said, there's no limit to what you can achieve if you don't mind not getting the credit. And that is where I think we are. The UK are quite happy having making it look like every row has led to a success. And the EU are quite happy having their way. Do you think this is going to resurface? Then you say, OK, right now, this seems to be a kind of prospect of a decent settlement. Is this something that's just going to keep coming back in the perhaps future incarnations of David Frost? Um We'll want to uh, we'll, we'll want to kind of revisit it and, and trigger something else. Brexit will never get done. Brexit is a negotiation without end. Even the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement envisage cycles of negotiation on one-year, five-year bases. The idea that Brexit means we are now free of having to engage with the European Union is is contrary to the actual position where. I think a great deal of our politics is now going to be about engaging with, with our neighbouring European Union. And yes, these sort of issues are going to keep on. It's impossible to see how we can now negotiate a situation where we will not have these conflicts and, and, and synthetic rows from time to time. 
I personally would like us to enter into an association agreement on a once and for all basis, actually providing common institutions between us and the EU so that we can actually get out of this cycle of acronymy. But I don't see that happening. And so, yes, I think this is an argument before end. A sort of little left of our own. You're saying a sort of little eft of our own that has its own court and etc. Yeah, something along that. There are there's embryonic institutions within the uh, withdrawal agreement and trade and cooperation agreement as it is. It just need we we just need to formalise those, and so we would then get EU plus UK. There's no reason why that can't be done, but uh, in, in in ultimately, but practically. I don't think any post-Brexit government is going to allow itself to uh, enter into such an agreement. And so I'm afraid, yes, I think we are going to get these rails all the time. And let's see what 2022 David Frost comes up with. Well, at least at least it's material for us. <laughs> Alex, on Newsnight last week, Ian Paisley Jr. confirmed that Johnson had told him personally in 2019, before the election, that he always intended to ditch parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. This followed Dominic Cummings' latest Bond villain tweet storm in which he revelled in his deceit and went, cheating foreigners is a core part of the job, Mr Bond. As usual, most British journalists and voters don't seem to care about this. But could this hurt his credibility abroad um, with other people who may well care about? I have to say, this is one of those stories that, jaded as I am, I'm still astonished he's not getting more traction. I think it points to a really fundamental laziness in the media. Because what you have here is two independent people confirming that Johnson signed this agreement in bad faith, intending to break it. Mm. And, you know, the notion that this was an oven-ready deal that was going to get ready, going to get Brexit done, I mean, suspend our disbelief for a moment. Let's put ourselves you know, in the shoes of someone who was convinced by it and voted for Johnson. This wasn't some ancillary sales puff, you know. This was the government's central fucking plank for getting elected. This was the main thing they promised to voters. This was the main thing that won them the vote. Yeah, it was almost a single issue. And, and not just from leavers. I was looking at some uh, uh, polling data recently that found a fifth of Remainers voted for Johnson on the basis that they just wanted the whole thing to be over. They just didn't want to hear anything about Brexit ever again. So this is a, this is a betrayal of, a, of the central pledge that secured them this majority. And no, everyone seems to be shrugging and pricing in that this is a venal, corrupt government that will lie and cheat to get what it wants. And this is the same government that's now in charge of boundary realigning of a new elections bill that will give ministers the uh, the power to decide what is within electoral rules and what isn't. And and I find that deeply, deeply worrying. And, and people abroad are noticing, you know, Leo Varadkar who was the the former mm. Irish 
uh, Irish Prime Minister and currently Deputy Prime Minister and who was the person who negotiated directly with Johnson came out and said, I have the, the, the quote here, this is an administration that acted in bad faith and that message needs to be heard around the world. It is relevant to everyone dealing with the UK. This government doesn't honour the agreements it signs. I mean... <laughs> Alex is right, of course, uh, on all points. But it is also worth saying, when you think about the real politique involved, that it was the fact that Johnson himself effectively brought about Brexit. I don't believe Nigel Farage on his own could have done it. It required Johnson's input. That then logically led people to think, once they had been shown a little of the hell that was Brexit, that Johnson himself, with his remarkable powers, was the only man who could then push it through. Mm. And I think that was the psychological process which people, consciously or not, went through when they assumed that Johnson could sort out the shit show that he created. Alex, the domestic audience may ignore the demonstrable bad faith, but as you know, the international audience, the people with whom we will be signing agreements or trying to sign agreements with, will see this. And this will also be priced in, so to speak, what international organisation will feel comfortable taking what the United Kingdom says at face value? Foreign governments and international organisations will now be seeking tighter protections because they now know and can see clearly that the United Kingdom government is capable of acting in bad faith in entering into international agreements. So we've just turned up effectively the the difficulty multiplier on all future trade deals. It's not helpful to have one of the architects of Brexit say that cheating foreigners is a core part of the job. That's not great no. for diplomacy. No. As you know, I'm I'm not entirely with you guys on 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 Brexit. Though I am not opposed to Brexit in principle, I am opposed to really bad implementations of Brexit. I know this puts me on, uh, in a small minority on a show like this. It's okay, we've changed but the name of the it, show. Where you're allowed now. <laughs> <laughs> but if we were, if we were to have taken Brexit seriously, and this government has never taken Brexit seriously. If this government were to take Brexit seriously, it would have used the first few months and years as a showcase to show the world we are a sensible, reliable international partner to enter into agreements in this post-Brexit period. So we would have done the negotiation, we would have conducted the negotiations in such a way to show the rest of the world that we are a mature country capable of taking international obligations seriously. And the rest of the world would have seen that and thought, yes, we can actually deal with these people. We have done the opposite of what we could have done. We could not have done more to show what a humiliating clustermuck we, we can make of this sort of thing. And this is part of what makes this so depressing, is this deliberate attempt to maximise the dreadfulness of the situation. It did not have to be this bad. And we have now a laughing stock in a way which we shouldn't have been. We should have been showing off to the world our prowess in inter entering international organisations and entering into international agreements. And what we have done is that we have said it's a core competency to actually be of bad faith. Roz, finally, on paper, right, you've got this opinion poll saying that 61 to 31 percent of people say Brexit is going badly. I'd like to talk to some of the 31 there. Um, 
And 43 to 42 actually say that given the choice of a new, entirely new referendum, would rejoin, which is the first time there's been a a narrow majority for rejoin. We've got trade disruption, uh, you know, shortages of goods and labour continuing into the winter. Inflation is becoming a problem. Um, Why? (laughs) The government has just basically, we've just suddenly discovered the government admitted that it lied on its key uh, election pledge. Do you have any faith that at some point uh, this will actually, people will actually decide <laughs> that this matters? That, that, that any one of these things, let alone all of them together? Yeah, I do. I mean, fundamentally, this is almost what we talk about every single week. Every week, week. Like, oh, well, God, right now. Yeah. <laughs> what will it take to for people to wake up? And, you know, we mustn't sound kind of, I don't want to sound patronising and say, what will it take for all these people who don't care about politics to, you know, realise what, how bad things are? Oh, this time, is, this yeah. time. And, and let's face it, you know, so far, so far they have. But, but it will become the case that Johnson's sheen comes off. Johnson is not immortal. He is a remarkable politician who exerts a extraordinary pull over voters. He is the star of the stage. He, he, you cannot take your eyes off him, whether you despise him or whether you love him. You cannot take your eyes off him when he is performing on the stage. And like we Alex. see this, yeah. We, we see this. We see this all the time. With um, when whenever he makes a speech, no matter how appalling it is, we all fall over ourselves to interpret it. We we are not bored with him yet. Now, what will it take for us to become bored of Johnson? What will it take for us to become bored of his shtick? Now, conventionally, of course, you know, people say, well, once economic circumstances become uh, become bad enough, his appeal will fall off and the scales will fall from people's eyes and there will be a Saul to Paul-like conversion uh, on the road to Damascus or wherever and we will realise that what, <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a completely appalling person we elected as Prime Minister. I don't think it will be one thing. It won't be that sudden. It will be a gradual disillusionment. But it will happen and it will happen all the faster if there is a viable alternative whom people can put their faith in and if they see an alternative prospectus that they believe could make a difference. Because after all, that is why people voted for Brexit, because they wanted to make a difference to life in their quality of life in this country. And they thought that Brexit would do that. Well, that is what will bring about change. Well, I'm just going to leave it with saying that I saw the word stagflation for the first time outside histories of the 1970s uh, the other day. So, um, so, so maybe that will do it. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated. This week, it's David Allen Green's turn. OK, Overrated is commentary. Uh, commentary such as Twitter, blogs, podcasts such as this. A constant noise. Don't shit where you eat. We're going to be out of a job. (laughs) A constant noise of people trying to make sense of events and people looking to those commentators to make sense of those events. What happens when you provide commentary? Usually what you're doing is saying something which affirms what people believe anyway. That is why those people follow you and click onto your Twitter feed or tweet onto your articles or onto your blog posts or listen to your podcasts. Sometimes you won't be affirming 
you will be actually providing stuff for them to adopt as views. Sometimes you might actually say something which could challenge a pre-existing view. But I think commentary really is overrated. It is in a, We are now in a situation where 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every minute of every hour, every second of every minute, you can go on to Twitter and you can read commentary. And people are getting too caught up in following events on this day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis. People are not sitting back and just reflecting on how different events at different times connected to each other. They are caught up in the constant here and now. And so there are things which happened with Brexit, because I'm trying to put together this book on Brexit, where things that happened in 2016 and 2018 and 2021 are actually remarkably similar, and you can connect these things together. But most people have forgotten what happened at the start of 2021 by now, because they are constantly preoccupied with making sense of the events on an ongoing basis. So I would say commentary is an overrated thing, but I think reflection, calm reflection is very underrated. Just taking a step back from the constant babble of politics and media events to actually think, right, what views do I have to try and actually form one's own views rather than actually looking to a commentator such as myself and others to either affirm a view or to provide a view for you to adopt or provide a view to challenge your view. Actually, just formulating one's own, your own views over time is an undervalued thing. And so that is my underrated thing, reflection. My overrated thing is commentary. Thanks, David. On the subject of confirmation, actually, I do like, I like it when people tweet us and go, I really disagreed with what so-and-so said on this week's. And I just think, good, Hmm. good, because it was something that didn't confirm what you thought. And maybe in the act of disagreeing, you were thinking more about why you think, or, you know, maybe some of the people who listen to that thing might therefore change their minds. God forbid. Like, I actually kind of, I actually kind of like it. It's like, good, good. There was a thing you didn't like. My nana used to say, God gave you one mouth and two ears for a reason. Which, which I think is basically the summary of what David was saying. <laughs> it's akin to what happens in, in, in the worst sort of art exhibitions, where you have these great artefacts, but people don't actually look at the artefacts. They go from caption to caption, reading about what the artist is trying to, 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 to convey and whatever. <laughs> and so you watch them, you stick, take a step back, and you watch people going from caption to caption, spending time mm. reading about the artefact, and then just quickly glancing up at the artefact. <laughs> As if the actual artifact is an aid of a con- to construct the, uh, the label rather than the caption being there to actually explain what you can see. You know, I'm often tempted to go into exhibitions, just go around and tear down all the captions to force people to actually look and form their own views of what they're looking at. It reminds me of this great Father John Misty lyric about the commentary to comment on. Yeah. Um, but obviously this commentary, notwithstanding David's excellent points, the commentary provided by or what now, is uh, an invaluable weekly resource. Yeah, It's interesting that uh, Dominic Cummings has been making exactly this point pretty much in recent tweets that you should not follow so much political commentary. But yeah, I agree with you, Dorian, that 
I'm always slightly, slightly pleased when people are disappointed in me because of something about I said. Well, no, God, what now? Because it shows that I kind of, I, I am not the paragon. <laughs> yeah, I'm not paragon, but I'm not uh, entirely in agreement with them, and that's a good thing. But also, it's a little bit like film reviews, isn't it? You know, <laughs> you're not going to agree with every film review, but you find reviewers that over time you you chime with that you trust and you go to their reviews because you know you have similar tastes and come from a similar place. I mean, that's not to say you can't form your own opinion in a film, but as a as a guide of what to look at, maybe. It's but it's useful. nice to disagree without feeling that it's a personal affront to yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. I think the art of just being able to go, I generally like this person, this commentator, uh, but actually I think they're wrong on this. Yeah. We disagreed on, on scum. Yeah, uh, and like it's uh, it's it's fine, and I think this idea that one should constantly look for confirmation, and that therefore certain commentators are constantly playing to their assumed yeah, that's tiresome. It's kind it? of pretty destructive. Um, if you disagree with that, great. <laughs> if you disagree with that, fuck you. I thought you were. Gonna... <laughs> no. <laughs> Welcome. Now it's time for a listener question in But Your Emails to wrap up. This week, PG Ellison says, Mark Zuckerberg is reportedly planning to rebrand the company that owns Facebook in order to distance it from the harmful effects of Facebook. As people who pulled off a successful rebrand yourselves, thank you, <laughs> from Romaniacs to Oh God, What Now, can you advise Mr. Zuckerberg on how he should detoxify his brand? Um, I was saying, get a whiteboard. <laughs> Stop doing bad stuff. <laughs> then have weeks of painful uh, brainstorming before finally coming up with a name that you realise you came up with very early on in the process. But, um, Roz... Well, I mean, fundamentally, he should give up on this rubbish about making the world better. I mean, uh, Facebook was never going to make the world better, but he continues to insist that in some some way it will. And we have to be honest about what Facebook will be, particularly if, his, I understand, he plans. He basically wants to rebrand Facebook as part of the metaverse, as I believe we are now describing oh, the God. hell that will be some kind of virtual reality Facebook. Uh, and whatever form that takes, that is not going to make the world better. No, it is impossible. He has to constrain his ambitions. He has to stop talking rubbish about the possibilities of social media and how they will improve democracy in everyday lives, because quite clearly that is not going to happen. Well, if somebody, if it was going to happen, it probably wouldn't be from the guy who started off encouraging students to rank how hot female <laughs> students were. Like it, was, it was quite a leap from that to better living through information. Alex, would you would you have any t- rebranding tips? Well, oh God, what now is for sale if Zuckerberg wants to chuck us a few billion? <laughs> no, it is not, Alex. No, it wouldn't. No, okay. I don't think, I don't Come know. I, how many, how many billion would you leave you zero. to go through that brainstorm? No, I, I, I ended up, it, it, I read this email and ended up in this very fun uh, sort of, you know, internet searching loop where I was looking at alternative names for things. And I found out that Google was going to be called Backrub. Genuine, true story. PayPal was Confinity. And Pepsi was going to be called Brad's Drink. 
and Subway was Pete's super submarine. <laughs> so maybe he should go down that route and call it Mark's Lovely Company or Mark's Definitely Not a Publisher, Inc. or Mark's a Diamond Geezer.com. David? Imagine how recent politics would have been different had we had the wit to call the European Union the Winston Churchill Memorial Organisation. <laughs> <laughs> we could call, and, and instead of having treaties in places like Nice, Marseille, and Lisbon, if the treaties had been signed in Clapton or Margate <laughs> or Folkestone, and actually, this is the vocabulary we would have had to have worked with, then I think at a stroke, uh, a lot of people would have been won over. Part of the problem with the Human Rights Act is its name. It's, it is, for a certain frame of mind, provocative. So it should they rebrand, called... maybe call it Donald Tusk's Lovely Trade Club? But if you, you just call it something slightly different, you know, do a Windermere cellar scale sort of thing, and it would, Sellerfield sort of thing, and you would find... A wind scale, a lot of, yeah. Yes, that's it, wind scale. Uh, you would find a lot of the opposition. The opposition to the European Union and the Human Rights Act often is just to the sound of those words. It's it's extraordinary. But the the notion that uh, we we are opposing something which, if it was slightly differently worded, nobody would be that upset about. The Human Rights Act is not a terribly strong piece of legislation. So if it was just retitled European Convention Brackets Construction and Interpretation of Statutes Close Brackets and Related Purposes Act, nobody would really Just make it too dull to object. No, I think if the word European was there, (laughs) they'd be going after it. I I always like it when companies rebrand and then they sound like the names of... um, of the kind of villains in dystopian sci-fi movies. <laughs> so, like, if anything that sounds like, you know, Omnicorp. <laughs> well, that's yeah. usually done for intellectual property reasons, so they can have a distinct phrase which nobody else has used. Let me go on the internet and back rub that and get back to <laughs> <laughs> And that's the show. Thanks to Alex. Thank you. Roz. Thank you. And our guest, David Allen Green. Thank you. Stay tuned for our extra bit for patrons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demonism Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Many thanks and best wishes to Sarah Jones, M. Cohen, Lynn Roberts, Adrian Stirrup, Alex Wright, Robert Levac, Peter Laws, and Vanessa Nadge. Hello and thanks from me to Dave Hardy, Pete West, Narantes Kitchen, Caroline McGrath, Becky McGrath, Fiona Gerling, Ben Wiltshire and Georgina Weber. And thanks from me to Claire Doherty, Antigone Jovich, Ryan Bentley, Jordan, Carolyn McGill, Emma Byrne, Dermot Hanny and Jay Durston. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreev and Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. On the extra bit this week, schools are back, pubs and clubs have been open for three months, football stadiums have been full of supporters since August. Let the good times roll. 
But are we too blasé about a potential winter crisis? And do we understand what the last phase of a pandemic looks like? Um, Ros, how do you feel about being out and about with cases so high? Is there is there some of the cognitive dissonance that I experienced last weekend? I guess, you know, when I go out, I want to make it worth it. If I'm going to be mixing with a lot of people, I want to have a, you know, decent experience, whether that's uh, theatre or being with friends or so on. So there's there's that that's going on. But I accepted once kids went back to school in September and I was, you know, they weren't vaccinated. It was clear that cases were going to spread and one of my kids at least was going to get COVID. And indeed that happened. Fortunately, I didn't catch it off him. But it's it's... I, I have, yeah, I, I am reasonably, reasonably sanguine about it because, in a sense, I know that there are worse things than dying of COVID at the age of forty-six. Many worse things that can happen to you in, to you in life, and uh, that may sound extremely pessimistic, but I've made my peace with it. There are worse things than dying. Yeah, absolutely, there are worse things than dying. Okay, but, but not, well, not to you not personally. personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, to me personally. I mean, one of the things about living with a long-term condition is you realise how bad things could get. And that concentrates the mind somewhat. Alex, why are European cases so much lower at the moment, like a third of the UK? Well, I mean, the, the, the primary reason is what Christina Pagel was talking about on, on the podcast a couple of months ago, where she was saying that there are different levels of endemicity. You know, a, a, a disease becoming endemic is not necessarily always at the same level. You can have endemicity at high, uh, medium, low level. We have endemicity at a higher level than other countries. But other than that, I mean, I was looking at some, because you know how I like my polling data. So I was looking at some comparative polling data from various European countries. And trust in the government's handling in the UK has gone from 73% in April 2020 to 35% now. The European average is 75% to 60%. Mm. In Denmark, it's gone from 85% to 75%. Meanwhile, people are a lot less uh, scared of catching it. So uh, people being very or somewhat afraid of catching COVID is down from 60% to 40%, which means that only about 40% are now avoiding public places as a sort of philosophical choice. So, and all those are below the European averages, even though with cases being so much lower in other countries, they have less reason to be avoiding public places, if that makes sense. So I think... It's a it's a combination. Of and that was a trailer for the extra bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. It really does help us to keep going. And don't forget our new weekly mini cast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>